That's Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through to 21. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the, Holy, giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll get into God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a good God. Thanks that we see that clearly when we look at the cross and see what you did for us. Um, thank you, God, that you're not just a good God who saves us, but you're a good God that involves us in what you're doing in this world. We pray this morning now that we would um, see what you're saying in this passage uh, that we would understand it and that we would, we would be changed people as we leave this morning, transformed by what you're doing in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so something massive happened this week that in all likelihood is going to change the world. I hope you know what, you're, what I'm talking about there. It was in the newspaper all week. And obviously what I'm talking about, the game changer in the world, is the fact that someone down, I think it was in Sydney, got a bunning sausage via a drone. Right? I don't know if you saw that in his spa, he got a bunning sausage via a drone, probably cost him 9,000, but as far as I'm concerned, that's a game changer. Right? That's gonna change the world. Now, obviously I'm not talking about that. Um, what happened in America could potentially change the world as far as we know it, 
Um, what I am talking about is Don uh, Donald Trump being the next president. It happens in January, I think. That could potentially change the world. Now, on the one hand, I'm glad um, about all this because it means we can stop hearing about the American presidential race. I feel like it's been going for about two years. I'm really happy that that's finished and over it. On the other hand, I don't really know how to feel about all this that's happened. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing because at the end of the day, I'm in Australia and I don't really know what's going on in American politics. So you're not going to see me jump on Facebook this week to talk about Trump winning the race or whatever that means. Um, I don't really know what's going on. So I don't really know how to feel about this, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. But at the end of the day, either way, whether it is good or bad, I'm just glad that we live in Australia. Right? Like, I'm just glad that we live as far away from it as possible. That really, aside from politics, aside from, you know, our alliances with America, in Australia, we're safe. Right? We're, we're as far from it as possible. Which isn't how many Americans felt this week. So, again, I don't know if you saw this, but on Wednesday, many Americans didn't feel safe after they voted Trump in. Now, it's their fault they voted Trump in, but lots of them didn't feel safe. It's clear from the fact that the Canadian immigration website actually went down on Wednesday. It crashed because of the amount of people trying to flee the country to flee from safety, right? Because they wanted to feel safe and they didn't feel safe. Fair enough. Again, glad that we live in Australia. But see, this desire to feel safe, it's kind of a universal desire. It's not just an American desire or even Canadian or countries that don't even know the, the, what it is to feel safe. The idea of safety is foreign. It's not just a desire that happens in Australia. It's a universal thing. We all want to feel safe. All of us, right? Not just physically, but all throughout life, we want to feel safe. We want to feel safe in our homes. That's why we lock the front door and the door behind that and make sure the dog has a clear run to that door, right? We all want to feel safe in our relationships. We want to be safe. In our homes, we want to be safe. In our lives, we want to be safe. Now, now as we come here together this morning in church, as we think about, we celebrate, enjoy, we praise the God of the universe, Right, the God who is a bigger leader, a more powerful leader than Trump ever will be. As we celebrate this God, I guess the question for us this morning is, can we ever feel safe when it comes to us and God? Right, like my place before God, is it possible for me to actually feel safe? And what do I have to do to feel safe? Right, that's the question at the end of the day. What do I have to do to feel safe before the God of the universe? So if you have your Bibles there this morning, we're going to get into this in Acts chapter 15. And what we're going to see in chapter 15 is they're answering kind of a similar question. How do we know if people are safe? And it all begins in chapter 15, verse 1. This is what Luke, the author, writes. Some men came down from Judea and, uh, to Antioch and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, taught by Moses, sorry, you cannot be saved. You cannot be safe unless you are circumcised. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all of the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. How can we be safe before the God of the universe? Well, the men from Judea are saying, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be safe. 
right? That's the message that they're preaching. Now, hopefully this morning, I don't have to do too much groundwork to explain to you what circumcision is, right? But there is a little bit more to it than just being clean. So without trying to cut things short, that's a very good pun. Um, basically what circumcision was. In the Old Testament, um, the, the men would get circumcised to show they were a part of God's people, right? That's what it was about at the end of the day. They would do that to show they're a part of God's people. Now, in the Old Testament, if you're a Gentile, so someone that's basically not a Jew, if you're a Gentile, you too could be circumcised. And that would show kind of that you're a part of God's people. You're, you're kind of a part of God's people. And so here, the men of Judea are saying, well, to be a Christian... Right? To be God's people, you still need to get circumcised. Right? You still need to do certain things. You still need to look like us. You still need to play the part of what it looks like to be a Christian. Right? It's a message that's not really that different from stuff we hear sometimes today. Right? It's the message that to be safe, you need to do. Right? You need to do stuff. So to be safe, you need to be going to church. You're not saved if you're not going to church. To be safe, you need to read the Bible to pray. To be safe, you need to do certain things. You need to look certain ways, read certain versions of the Bible. To be safe, you need to do. And this message that you need to do to be safe, it's actually a crippling message. Right? The, the message that the men of Judea are giving, it's a crippling message that you need to, be, to, to perform, to be accepted, to be safe. Right? And, and we see this throughout life that this message to perform, to do, to be safe is a crippling message. We see it first of all in um, if you've ever been micromanaged. Right? So, so micromanagement, the worst type of management, when your boss is sitting next to you day in, day out, every move you make is criticized, critique, critiqued. Right? Under that environment where you feel like you need to perform in everything, it's a crippling environment. Right? You don't feel safe there. You feel like you've got to perform day in, day out. It's, almost, it's also what happens in sport. Right? So at the moment, um, the Australian cricket team is getting smashed. And I know cricket season for many of us isn't a joyful thing. We hate the fact that cricket's even a sport that we watch. For the rest of us, we love it. We're not loving it at the moment, though, because Australia are getting smashed. But in this environment, there's still the, the message that you need to perform to be safe is still not a, it's a crippling message. So after the first game, when Australia lost, everyone on Facebook was going, you know, we need to sack the whole team, start again. But the experts weren't saying that. They were saying, when you feel like you need to perform to be safe, it's crippling, right? It's actually a, a devastating message despite the fact that you know, our team's still losing, the experts were saying, keep the team, right? They need to feel that they're safe to perform. It's actually, it's a crippling message if you have to perform to be safe. And this is what these guys are saying. You need to do to be safe. The, the men of Judea, that's what they're saying. You need to perform, you need to tick off certain lists to be safe, but it's a crippling message. It's terrible news. It's not good news, it's terrible news. And Paul and Barnabas know this. Right? And so we see in verse 2, they actually get into sharp dispute about this. They argue about this. And then they get sent to Jerusalem to figure out what's going on about this. Right? And so on their way, they tell people about how God is saving Gentiles. And then eventually they get to Jerusalem. But what they find in Jerusalem is that this message that you need to do to be saved is even in Jerusalem. Not just limited to Judea. It's in Jerusalem. And we see that in verse 5. This is what it says in verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The message is you need to do certain things to be safe. 
You need to look like us to be safe. You need to be ticking off lists. You need to be religious to be safe, to be saved. It's a crippling message. It's not good news. That's a horrible message. It's bad news. And so the question still remains for us. If the Bible tells us a good news message of how we can be safe, how do we become safe? Or how do we stay safe? Because the message we've seen so far in verse 1 and verse 5 isn't good news. So if we have good news in the Bible, how are we safe? Well, the the men, the apostles and the elders, they meet together to consider this question. In verse 6, how are people safe? And then in verse 7, this is where we pick up the story. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? And this verse 11 is the key verse, not verse 12 like I told Don. Verse 11 here, this is the key verse here. No, we believe it is through grace. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. How are we safe? How are we made safe? How are we saved before the God of the universe? Peter says it's through grace that we are saved. Now, the grace that he's talking about here, it's not what you say before dinner, right? It's not that kind of grace. It's not even when a dancer, you know, dances amazingly and they dance gracefully. What he's talking about here is something different. It's actually an undeserved gift, right? That's also a meaning for the word grace. It's an undeserved gift. It's something you can't earn and that you don't deserve. And Peter says, this is how we're saved. From God, a gift from God that we can't earn, that we can't deserve, that we can't do anything to get. It's simply a gift from God. Now, before we talk about what grace is, he does say here in verse 10, let's not test them by putting on them a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. And what he's talking about there is putting a burden on them. And the burden is the law of Moses. So he knew that to obey the law in the Old Testament, couldn't just pick and choose. Couldn't do one thing without the rest. You had to do all of it. And that was too big a burden for anyone to bear. Right? The Pharisees were, you could say, you could argue they might have been the best at obeying the law. Even they failed horribly. Right? And so Peter's saying, we couldn't do this. So why are we putting this on other people? Why are we trying to put this burden on other people, a burden we couldn't even handle? Paul says later on in the Bible that the law is actually given to show we're sinful, not to give us a list of things that we need to do. Right? And so, so he says that, and then he says how we're made safe, how we're made safe how we are saved, and the answer is through grace. It's an undeserved gift. And really what he's getting at here, the heart of what he's getting at here, is that you can't do anything to be saved. Right? You can't do anything to be safe. The only way that we are saved, the only way that we're made safe is through grace, through what Jesus has done. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done at the cross. That's how we're made saved. It's an undeserved gift. It's something we couldn't earn. We don't deserve. And what he's saying here is really unlike anything else we see in this world. 
It's unlike anything else. This is an undeserved gift that you can't earn and that you don't deserve. It's, like, it's unlike anything. It's especially unlike those emails that you might have been receiving from the Prince of Nigeria. So I don't know if you've got any of them lately. Uh, I haven't, which shows my spam folder's working pretty well. But the emails from the Prince of Nigeria, basically they say, if you do this, you know, if you give me your bank details, then we will make you an heir of Nigeria. Right? I actually heard about a guy the other day that uh, was giving thousands of dollars over a month and then was so concerned about what was going on in Nigeria, he went to visit and again was left bitterly disappointed to realise that not only has his money not going to the Prince of Nigeria, but there is no Prince of Nigeria that's been emailing him. And so he was left disappointed because it's a scam. So if you get any of those emails, just know it's a scam. But you can't really blame him, can you? I mean, in the words of Michael Scott from The Office, if the Prince of Nigeria directly sends you an email, you need to respond because his dad owns the country. Right, but if, if you don't know what the office, the, the quote still stands, right? You can't really blame him. Well, you can, it's a scam. So if you get that email, don't do it. But, but anyway, it's not really a gift they're offering, it's conditional. If you do this for me, I will give you this. If you give me your credit card details, if you give me your bank account, if you do this for me, I will give you something else. It's a conditional gift. And as far as I'm concerned, conditional gifts are the worst type of gifts. Up there with a free night at the Gold Coast if you sit through a four-hour seminar. Up there with $100 worth of Tupperware if 20 of your friends buy $100 worth of Tupperware. They're the worst type of gifts. They're not gifts. Right? But what Peter is saying here, how we are made safe is a gift. It is. We can't do anything to deserve it. The way that we are saved, we can't do anything to get that. It's a gift. It's an undeserved gift. It's an unmerited gift. You can't earn it. And so this morning, if you have come here and you're not a Christian and you want to be a Christian, I hope you can see what makes us a Christian. Coming to church doesn't make us a Christian. Reading our Bibles doesn't make us a Christian. Dressing certain ways doesn't make us a Christian. We are Christians by grace, the gift of God. It's not about what we do. It's about what's been done in Jesus' death and resurrection. Every other religion in the world tells you it's about what you do. Christianity is all about what's been done. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, please let me encourage you, look into this. And if you want to become a Christian, it's easy. Trust in God's grace. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it, but it's a gift given to us. And if you are a Christian here this morning, then don't just move over this too quickly because we've heard about grace before. Actually, need to stop and rejoice and remember, celebrate the fact that God hasn't saved me because I'm awesome. He hasn't saved me because he needs me. He hasn't saved me because I can do anything. He has saved me because he's a good God who loves me. He loves us and he has saved us in grace. It's a freeing message. It's a flourishing message. And really, as we see here, it's a transforming message. If we can grasp grace, it will transform us in every way, in our own lives, but then as a church community. And really what we see from this moment on in the rest of our passage, and we're going to go to 16 verse 5, the rest of this passage is that grace transforms the way we do everything. 
So we see in verse 12 that Paul and Barnabas start talking about the miracles again, how God has saved Gentiles, how God has saved outsiders. And then in verse 13, James is about to speak. But before he speaks, what he's going to say is that the message of grace transforms the way we do we do community and the way we actually reach outsiders, the, the way we reach people in our world. And, and I know we've been talking a lot here uh, a little bit lately about how in our church we're going to change our church structure, I guess, to something called the five M's. Right now, if you were here last week, you heard Ross talking about it. If you weren't here, that's okay. Um, basically what it is, is it's just a way to remind us that we need to be doing all that God has called us to do, right? It's not a restricting structure. It's not a breaking structure. It's just a way to help us put on the radar what God has called us to put on the radar, right? It's kind of like the trellis in the vine. So I don't know if you've been to South Bank lately and you walk through that, I don't know, that path with all those vines up the top. Um, so so that's a, what's holding that up is the trellis and then you get those great vines. Now, when we think about church, the church is the vine. We want to grow. We want to flourish. We want to be all that God has called us to be. But we actually need some sort of structure to actually to, to grow on. It's not restricting. It's, it's actually freeing. And so the five M's are just a structure that help us do what God's called us to. So just quickly, the five M's are mission. We want to help people see that Jesus is everything. Membership, we want to connect people into our church. Maturity, we want to grow to be more like Jesus. Ministry, we want to serve in teams. We want to serve people to help them see Jesus. And magnification, we want to make Jesus known in our world. We want to make much of Jesus in worship, in our lives, in everything. We want to make much of Jesus. These are the five M's. And what we see in this passage explicitly is that grace transforms the way we do two things, membership and mission. And so the first one is membership. Grace transforms the way we do community. So let's see how this transforms the way we do community. Verse 13, if you have your Bibles there. When they finished, James spoke up. He said this, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people from, uh, for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will re rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things that have, that have been known for ages." Basically, he's saying that the Old Testament spoke about a day when outsiders, when Gentiles would be welcomed in. Then he goes on, and verse 19, again, this is key here. This is what he says in verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on the Sabbath. Grace transforms the way we do community. And verse 9 is explicit there. It is my judgment, he says, that we don't make it difficult for outsiders to be welcomed in. Now, we'll talk about what this means in a second because there is a question that remains here, right? We've just spent the best part of 15 minutes talking about how we aren't saved by what we do, but what Jesus has done. And then James gives four things for them to do. 
right? How, how do we understand that? Because that doesn't sound like grace. That definitely sounds like there's certain things we have to do, right? They're saying one thing, but doing another. It's like when you, eat, when you call TPG and they say they take your request seriously, they value, personal, they value this experience, and then you sit there for an hour and a half. Right? They're, they're saying one thing, but the music tells you something else. It's hypocrisy. It sounds like what's going on here. They say you're saved by grace, not by what you do. And then James says, but hang on, there's four things you've got to do. Right? Don't eat. Uh, what does he say? Abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. That definitely sounds like we've got to do something. So, so how do we understand what's going on here? Well, well, actually, the answer to what he's talking about there is in verse 21. When he says, For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is still read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And the reason that explains what's going on here is because in this stage of life, 2,000 years ago, it was actually a kind of a blurry period of the church's kind of history. So people had grown up, you know, as a Jew reading the, the law, reading the first five books of the Bible, and then they're, they're told about Jesus, but these practices are still taking place. Right, so it's kind of blurry. They're still wrestling the questions. Well, what do we do with this law? What do we do with the Old Testament stuff that we've been kind of obeying and hearing about every Sunday, every probably Saturday? What do we do with this stuff that, that's going on? And so the reason James brings that up is because when he gives them these four things, he's not talking about law. So he's not saying you need to do this to be saved. He can't be. He would have, he would have been in the discussion with Peter about how people are saved. It's by grace. So it can't be by law. But actually, it's, it's more out of love, right? He's giving them these four things to do out of love, to love their Jewish brothers and sisters who are still wrestling with what we do with the law, right? You see how it works? It's not about law. You're not saved by doing things, these things, but the freedom of grace allows us to love other people. And we see this, I think, from verse 31, when the people read it and they're encouraged, they're not burdened by this message. And so it's out of love. And so, uh, so James is saying here, Gentiles, outsiders need to love your Jewish brothers and sisters. But the same thing's true for the Jews. They need to love their Gentiles brothers and sisters. Basically, God's people need to love each other and make it easy for people to be welcomed in. That's verse 19. Therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. As we think about grace and community, we should not be making it difficult for outsiders to be welcomed in. And grace actually changes this. Right, as we grasp grace, it changes this. So the first way it changes this is as we realize God doesn't need me. God hasn't saved me because I'm a legend. He hasn't saved me because he needed me. He hasn't made me a part of this community because he needed me. He doesn't need me. Right? God saved me out of grace because he's a good God. And I was a broken sinner. He rescued me in grace. He made me a part of this community in grace. And as I realize that, as we realize that, we can't look at anyone else like we have some sort of moral high ground because God hasn't saved us because of what we do. He saved us because of what God has done, of what Jesus did at the cross. But the second way I think that we can make it hard for outsiders is that we can actually make it hard for outsiders be, to be welcomed in. I think we can make it hard for them in three ways, at least three ways. And so the three ways that we can make it hard for outsiders to be welcomed in are by three R's. So hopefully that's easy to remember. Uh, the first way is rituals. The second way is reactions, and the third way is religious arrogance. So firstly, we can make it hard for people to be welcomed in with rituals. So God's actually given us church and community and the Bible and prayer as gifts. Right? They're meant to be good things. 
But when people come in, if we make them game-breaking things, right? Like if you don't come to church, if you don't read, then you're out, you're not safe. They actually become a burden. And they're never designed to be a burden. And so I think we're pretty good at this here at Southside. I don't think when people come in, we put this burden on them that they've got to be here every week. If you feel that, I'm sorry. If you feel like you're only safe by being here every week, you're not. It's by grace that we're safe. But, but we do need to be careful not to drift into this. What we do doesn't save us, including what God has given us as gifts. So that's the first way that we can make it hard for outsiders to be welcomed in. The second way is through our reactions. I think far bigger problem for me and a, a far bigger problem for us as we think about welcoming people in, it's in our reactions. I don't think it's a coincidence that Matthew 7.1 is more and more becoming the most quoted verse, judge not lest you be judged. Right, I don't, and it's mostly from people who aren't even in the church. Um, our reactions actually make it hard for people to be welcomed in. When we are judging people by what they wear or what they do, what they look like, what their interests are, and I struggle with this, right? I do struggle with this. But when we react that way, we're actually communicating something. We're communicating that you need to act a certain way, be a certain way to be safe, but you don't. Grace saves us, right? Grace does. It wasn't the fact that I was born in a Presbyterian church or that I grew up in the family that I grew up with. That, that doesn't save me. And so this morning, we need to check our reactions. Remember, I'm saved by grace. That transforms the way I react to other people. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter the bad things you've done. It doesn't matter what you've been up to. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't, it, it doesn't matter where you, you are from in Brisbane grace saves us and so we need to check our reactions right this is a challenge for us i don't think the world thinks of us as people that react good to them all the time we are known as people who are judgy so so let's check ourselves on this because grace doesn't allow us to do that and the third way um, we can make it hard for people to be welcomed in is from religious arrogance so i think that's actually what's going on here with these men from Judah, Judea and the Pharisees, there's religious arrogance going on. And what they do is they're making non-essential things essential. And by doing that, they're actually placing a burden on people. They're making it hard for people. So let me explain what I mean by that. In Christianity, we have things that are closed-handed issues. They are essential things, things that if you don't believe, you're not a Christian, things that we don't open up and talk about, things that we fight for, right? Things that, yeah, again, if you don't believe these things, you're probably not a Christian. So things like Jesus being God, things like people being sinful, these are essential, close-handed things that we, don't, we, we won't change on. We have to agree on this to be Christians. When we sing the creed, we're talking about essential things, right? So there's the essentials. But then we have non-essential things, so open-handed things, things that we'll happily talk about, happily discuss, happily disagree on, but we're still Christians. So things like baptism is a non-essential thing. Predestination is a non-essential thing. Even the age of the earth is a non-essential thing. We can make it hard for outsiders when we actually take non-essential things and make them essential. When we place this burden on people that God never designed for us to place on them. So things like when we react to them, when we are, reli- when we are arrogant to them. You don't believe this about predestination? You don't believe this about baptism. Your Bible choice is weird. And so we start treating people like outsiders, but God never designed us to treat them like outsiders. The essential thing matters here. And you know where the worst place to do this is? Online. 
right, where we actually post online, we get into arguments online about non-essential things, and what it looks like to everyone looking in is that you are saved by these non-essential things, saved by what you think about non-essential issues, but we aren't. We're saved by grace. We're saved by Jesus dying on the cross. So we need to check ourselves here. Check our arrogance on religious, on, on our understanding of things. And really, at the end of the day, we need to make it easy for people to be welcomed in. We need to make it easy for people who come here to be welcomed in, whether they look different to us or act different to us or think different to us. We have to because the message of grace allows us to. It calls us to do this. And so when we grasp grace, it really does change the way we do community. The way we do membership, we welcome people in, we love people, and we do this together. But grace also transforms the way we do mission. And this is what we see in the rest of this passage, and we're just going to fly over the rest of this. Grace transforms the way we do mission into this world. From verse 22 to verse 35, what we see basically is that the message, the thing that they talked about at the, in Jerusalem gets sent to them. They're encouraged. Again, verse 31 is the key there. But then from verse 36 on to 16, verse 5, what we see is that grace transforms mission. Now, really, the end of chapter 15 is a bit weird. I mean, it, it actually is. From verse 36 to the end, Paul and Barnabas, who we've seen do mission together for so long, actually have a disagreement and split up and go separate ways. I don't think Luke's not commending them to us. This isn't a good thing what's happening here. I think it's just the reality, though, when sinful people who grasp grace, tell people about grace, sin will still be involved, right? I mean, that's just the reality of what happens. At the very best, what we can take from this is that they disagree on non-essential stuff and still agree on essential stuff, right? That Paul takes Mark, who, sorry, Barnabas take, takes Mark, who Paul didn't think they should take, who coincidentally, Mark was Barnabas's cousin anyway, which I think, you know, that's a little bit in-house family stuff there going on. And then Barnabas takes Silas, uh, Paul takes Silas. They go different ways. I mean, essentially, this is the first denomination, you know, that you see in history. You've got St. Paul's and St. Barnabas's or something like that. Now, we won't go with St. I don't know. We've moved on from that a little bit, I think. But, but this is what happens here. They disagree, but they're still doing mission. God's still working. The, the gospel still goes out. But in 16, 1 to 5, what we see is that grace transforms the way we do mission. And we see that from the fact that Paul meets Timothy and then Timothy gets circumcised, right? Like it, it really does show us pretty clearly that circumcision wasn't the issue in Jerusalem. The issue was how are people saved? And here Timothy gets circumcised. Why? Because he has the freedom in grace to get circumcised. Paul and Timothy decided that it would be better for him to get circumcised. So he does, and the mission goes on, people go out, the gospel goes out, and the church grows. Paul is putting into practice here what he'll say later on in the Bible, that he became all things to all people for the sake of winning some. Right? That's what he says in Corinthians. And here we're seeing that, all things to all people for the sake of winning some. Grace transforms the way we do mission, that we can be all things to all people for the sake of winning some. Now, here's where I struggle with this, because I do struggle with this whole concept. I need to become all things to all people to win some. I don't think I can do that, right? I can't be all things to all people. I can't. I'm not all people. I can't be everywhere at once. I, I struggle with this idea that I need to be all things to all people for the sake of winning some. But here's the beauty as we meet together as a church. 
We are not individually called by God. We are together called by God to be on mission. And together we can actually be all things to all people for the sake of winning some. We can, right? We can actually do this because sitting here today, we all have unique friendships, unique families, unique jobs, unique opportunities where we can be all things to all people. It's beautiful to know that we can be on mission together. It's beautiful because of the reality that I can't do this. I can't be the mum at school who picks up their kids from schools and talks to other mums. I can't be the dad who coaches soccer teams and cricket teams. I can't be the engineer. I can't be the teacher or, or, or I can't be the student in grade 11 or 12. I can't be that because I'm not that, right? I can't do this. I can't be the builder. I can't be the person that goes to the coffee shops, the same coffee shops again and again. I mean, I can do it in the technology park, but outside of that, I'm, pretty, I'm struggling there. I can't do it. But see, together, we can do it. Right? Together we can because you are the mums at school. You are the mums who pick up your kids from different schools in Brisbane. You are the dads who coach different teams in Brisbane. You are the men and women who work in places where you get to have lunch with people, the same people day in, day out that the rest of us don't. You are the people that go to the same coffee stores. You are the people in your street, your house in your street that can bear the gospel life. You are, and, and we are together, then we can do this. We can be all things to all people. See how good this is, right? God is just calling us to use our passions and our gifts, the places we're already in, to use them to win some, to be all things to all people. So here's what I can do. I can be the, the guy that plays cricket in my non-Christian Christian cricket team in the hope of winning some. I can go fishing something that I'm passionate and I enjoy, and if I meet people, can be on mission there in the hope of winning some. We can be strategic about getting to school early so we can have conversations with mums. We can be at uni talking to those people in our class for the sake of winning some. We can go to work on mission, knowing that the people I hang out with, I can, for the sake of winning some, be all things to all people. You see how grace transforms this? And you see how good it is that we can do this as a community. Grace does transform our lives individually, but our lives as a church. And when we grasp this, it's a freeing and a flourishing message that we can do this together. We can do mission together. And you see how this works too? Like the structure is not, it's not binding, it doesn't, it's not restricting, but rather as we think about the different things God's called us to do, as people bring people in to our church, it's where membership kicks in and we can help out there. We can start welcoming, loving people, having those conversations to people who have come in. Right? We can do this together. And as we do this together, we can be confident that the church will grow. I mean, this is what we see at the end of Acts chapter 16 and verse 5. The church was strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. Grace transformed them and the church grew. We can be confident that that's going to happen. God's still at work in this world, still being gracious still saving people. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but if the world stopped, it's because God stopped saving people. But we're still here. God's still saving people. God's still on mission. God's still being gracious. And the beauty of God's grace is that we can actually grasp this. As we grasp this, we can do this together. So let's pray. God, help us to do this together. Help us to be captivated by grace. Thank you that we aren't saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus has done at the cross. 
We pray that we would so grasp this message of grace that it would, be, it would give us the freedom to flourish in our world and in our community, to welcome people well, to love people well, and to tell people about the message of grace. God, thank you that you're still working in this world, that you're still being gracious. We pray that we would be captivated by this and that this would transform the way we, do our, the way we live and the way we do church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.